This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. You can find Remarkably Remote on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's played poker long enough. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. There's no such thing as playing poker uh, long enough until it's like 4am and you realize that you definitely should have quit playing poker long, long ago. Or if you're the Sunderland owner, 11pm on <laughs> right at the end of January. We will or be that. talking about Sunderland Till I Die, mm-hmm. episode 4, um, in the second half of today's show. Up first, Taylor. Yes, sir. We've collected all the soccer news that we could find. We have indeed. There, there, there has been some news. Uh, certainly, none of it on the field, unless you're following the Belarusian Premier League and their attempts to have like cardboard cutouts of fans in the stands. But we're not going to yeah. talk about that. We're going to talk about some actual news uh, from around the world. Some of it good. Some of it bad. Some of it somewhat in between. All of it newsy. There we go. There we first go. Newsy. Up, mm-hmm. First up, I think this story was first published in the New York Times. Tariq Panja, who's a journalist I've come to sort of really enjoy his work. Mm-hmm. Um, he had an interview with uh, Christian Seifert, who is the what CEO of the Bundesliga, mm-hmm. um, who laid out the plan of the Bundesliga may be back in action at the beginning of May and that Bundesliga 1 and 2 clubs are already practicing um albeit with uh, still social distancing. I'm not sure exactly how those practice sessions work, but apparently it, it's happening. And and my genuine response to seeing that news was, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like Germany. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. <laughs> it does, right? It really it's, does. It is. It's worth noting, this isn't definitely, definitely happening, right? I feel like a lot of a lot of responses to this is, have been sort of, how can they do that? Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's more that the Bundesliga is just putting plans in place so that things are ready to go if things go well. Yeah. I think it's also, like, it is worth noting, uh, and I have some more on this later on, that, like, lots of the leagues are doing this as well, are setting their plans in place because you have to have plans in place, and they're all sort of, here are our dates, and then there's the sentence at the end of, but obviously it's subject to change based on what the government says. If the government says no, then we're not going to do it. And I think that's the exact same thing with the Bundesliga. Maybe they just said it so, like, definitively or so confidently that that's why they've gotten more of a backlash. Or maybe it's that Christian Seifert of the Bundesliga was the only one who knew to call the New York Times. That could also be. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's what they're laying out. They're estimating that if they play games in empty stadiums, obviously, at the beginning of May, they think it will take 240 people per match, which hmm. sounds huge, but I started thinking about it. And if you factor in players, you know, subs as well, um, coaching staff, medical staff, match officials, production staff, uh, you know, because these are going to be broadcast on television, even especially because there are no fans in the stadium. Mm-hmm. I actually, I can see how you can get to 240 people pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, and and grounds crew and everything else you need to make sure that like the locker rooms have water. Like you got to have all that, like the facility staff in there yeah. as well. I'm assuming. So yeah, I think that number makes sense to me. Um, and also some numbers that make this. I think some numbers that explain why German football is the one that seems to be doing the most planning is that Germany is doing pretty well right. in terms of uh, coronavirus um, deaths per capita. 
Um, so Germany, here's the, here are the numbers. Germany has about 5,000 new cases per day and has a total at time of recording of about 118,000, total of 118,000 uh, diagnosed cases. Um, two to 3,000 people have died, which is actually low per capita compared to similar countries, right? So France has a similar number of cases. They've had 12,000 deaths. And the, what I've been reading is that uh, Germany essentially has really widespread testing and that's how they're managing to do reasonably well um, in comparison to other European countries. Right. And so then I think you extrapolate that further. And it's the idea that, well, if we have better testing in place, we've made sure that everybody stayed in quarantine uh, to the extent possible, at least, then we can sort of continue to enforce that. But then it does feel like it would be safe if you know that everybody is tested negative and isn't interacting with anybody else, then it stands to reason, yeah, you could have those games resume, allow, like assuming the government allows you to do so. It feels like yeah. there's a lot of conditional statements in there that sort of get overlooked. Uh, but are worth remembering because, it's, yeah, it's, again, Germany sort of just making the plans that they need to make to ensure that the season finishes to the extent possible and that a bunch of clubs don't go bankrupt and they don't find themselves in a massive financial hole. Yes. Plans need to be in place for things to happen as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, so I know that I, have you got any questions about this, Tyler? I've been researching this story or anything you want to talk about. Or do you want to talk about the other leagues that may have plans in place? I mean, as far as you know, so would it, it would basically be closed doors. It wouldn't just be in some like random field, right? But it wouldn't necessarily no, it be would, in the specific it, it would, stadiums. It would be at the actual stadiums, is okay. what my understanding is. Yeah, which is okay. slightly slightly different to the Premier League um, sort of the Premier League camp plan they were going to do. Oh, you know what I did? I'm sorry. Congregated around. I combined this with La Liga's plan. That's what I just did in my head. <laughs> There you go. Well, why don't you tell me about La Liga's plan? Then? I mean, it's essentially, it's not, it's not so dissimilar. It's basically, they've confirmed that they have three possible restart dates of uh, May 28th, June 6th, June 28th. Uh, matches expected uh, to be played behind closed doors. Uh, European games would take place in parallel or at the end of the domestic season. But the thing would basically be that uh, they would play in the stadiums uh, provided they can. But then there are some stadiums that have, I think, like scheduled maintenance, scheduled renovations, or already have existing things that might not be canceled at that point. So then oh, you I do see. have to yeah. do some sort of moving around, but I think the league would work with the clubs. And the big reason there is because uh, they've indicated they've already lost in the first two months. Uh, they've lost 25% of their annual income, which is uh, about 880 million pounds. Uh, and Or that's what they would risk if they do not end, finish the season. Uh, if they do finish it behind closed doors, similar to the Premier League, it would be, uh, I think, a loss of 265 million pounds. But saving that 600 million would be uh, ideal, to say the least. So I think that's where we will still see them try to make that happen. And again, as with Germany, they've said like, but this is all as long as the Spanish government allows us to finish out the season right now, Spain is in lockdown. So it stands to reason that they won't know until the government says, yes, you can or no, you can't. But again, they're just trying to make the plans as uh, as is France. Ligue 1, uh, I think they voted unanimously uh, that next season begins August 22nd, um, which then you might scratch your head and wonder, well, what's the plan for the rest of the season? If and when it resumes, it would uh, end on July 17th for Ligue 2, uh, July 25th for Ligue 1, or Ligue 2, uh, and then basically that leaves rooms for playoffs. The playoffs would end, end on August 2nd. So then you've got 20 days off, and then you're right back in for the start of the next season. Yeah, I mean, that might be the way it has to be, yeah. right? But it would be 20 days off and no Euros to exhaust all the players. Exactly. So there would at least be some sort of break. I think it's worth underlining that um, the reason that a lot of these leagues will want to see the season out it is financial, and it's because TV deals mm-hmm. are paid in installments. Right. This is the thing that it took me a long time to realize. I was kind of like, "We okay, you're going to lose match day revenue from fans coming through the gates and buying tickets, um, but you've got these massive, massive TV deals. Why isn't that enough for you to just you know, use that money and sit on that money? Mm-hmm. It turns out these things are paid in installments, and 
perhaps understandably, the TV companies are not they're not keen on paying the final instalment yeah. until the uh, until the actual matches are played, right? It's a little bit like uh, they're holding the money back until they see the soccer. And I'm not sure this is the case for and any clubs of the... depend on that money. They do, and I'm not sure it's the case for any of the three leagues that we have mentioned so far. But I do believe there are even some cases in which, like the contracts stipulate uh, that, like if the season isn't played, then there's like a forfeiture by the league. Like you can't even have those clauses in there uh, yeah. that could then come back to haunt them. Of then maybe the league is financially uh, responsible for like making those companies whole, in which case they have to pay even more money if the season doesn't finish. Uh, talking specifically about their TV deals, so I think that's another element of why. They're trying to get this situated and scheduled and figured out because they cannot afford to lose that income or potentially have to pay even more of their own income right now. Yeah, I don't know if the Bundesliga TV contract, uh, the domestic one, has mm-hmm. any penalties, but I do yeah. know the deal with Sky Deutschland, which is the big one. There's 300 million euros still to be paid, the final instalment yes. for the, the final few games of the season. And that's the one that hasn't been paid yet because those final few games of the season have not happened. So, uh, right, so, so, wait, so, Germany so Bundesliga plans- clubs are essentially like uh, like what we all are. They're sort of like waiting for the payment that hasn't yet come and then they can afford yeah. their bills. All right, cool. Exactly, cool. yeah. I've got some freelance checks that yeah. I'm, uh, I'm waiting on. Nothing Total yep. Soccer Show related, mm-hmm. but yeah, like business has slowed down everywhere, right? Yeah. That's part of the, prob- the wider problem with the economy is that checks have not gone out. <laughs> uh, so, but at least the Bundesliga have some plans in place. Uh, are you feeling optimistic about those Bundesliga plans? I mean, I would trust the Bundesliga yeah. to have as tight and sensible a plan as is possible. Um, I'm not I'm not necessarily confident that it goes ahead because it all depends on what happens uh, Germany-wide in terms mm-hmm. of health and coronavirus and whether they get it, uh, how much they get it under control or not, right? But if the opportunity arises, um, I would trust that the plan is as, as airtight as it can be. All right. All right. Well, anything I mean, else? Have you, have you spent much time in Germany? Like if you, um, for example, you know here how we recycle where we just throw everything into a big box and just mm-hmm. let someone take it away. Um, the time I've spent in Germany, you have to put green glass, brown glass and clear glass in separate containers mm-hmm. <laughs> so that the recycling can be done. Germany is very organized. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that stereotype kind of exists for a reason. Uh, so, yes, I think I have faith in them to sort of be smart, but also be cautious uh, and maybe a little cautiously optimistic. That's all fine. I'm OK with all there we go um i've got one other big story for you taylor um fifa has smoothed the way here so fifa put out a sort of um, a bit of guidance um a sort of proposal that they say that all contracts that would have expired this summer um they propose extending the contracts until such time that the season does actually end Mm -hmm. so the the go-to example in my head is always willian whose contract expires in june because he was going to play out the rest of the season with chelsea pedro the same so in this situation um fifa would say why don't we just make this easy? Chelsea just extend his contract till, you know, end of July, middle of August, whenever it, whenever it is that we manage to get this season finished. And they've said they'll also um, apply a similar principle to contracts due to start when the new season begins. So who's already agreed a move here? Josh Madger was in the past. Who's already <laughs> agreed a move for the summer? No idea. Um, it's, um, it's, it's been a terrible like, couple months. Hakim okay. Ziyech, uh-huh. right? Um, we knew he's going to be moving from Ajax to Chelsea. He's going mm-hmm. to become a Chelsea player next season. We assume his contract was ready to start. I'm, I'm just fascinated with Chelsea wingers, apparently, here. Um, his contract was ready to start probably something like end of June or July 1st, right, uh, with Chelsea. Under this situation, he would then extend his contract with Ajax and his start with Chelsea would be pushed back till, say, August. And then it, would all, it all sort of plays out as it would have, but just with a couple of months delay. 
Yeah. And, and I think what this all gets to, again, is that there's going to need to be a lot of flexibility from a lot of different people and organizations to make things yes. happen. Because yeah. there's going to be no perfect solution that makes a lot of sense. There inevitably is going to be a situation in which, like as we talked about with France, you have 20 days between the playoffs ending and literally the start of the next season, which means that, what, the playoffs end, then there's like a week for those playoff teams to maybe have a little bit of recovery, and then they're doing two weeks of preseason, and then the season starts. But that's kind of what it's going to have to be. It's going to have to yes. be figured out on the fly, and there's going to have to be a lot of flexibility and and so I think then FIFA sort of making that amendment, making that change makes a lot of sense. I do anticipate that there will be some pushback on that, both from players, both from agents. Uh, and so we may see some of that challenged because some players have challenged the mandatory salary cuts and things like that. So we could get some pushback, uh, but we shall see what happens if and when that does occur. The other thing FIFA um, suggested was they said we will be flexible and will allow the relevant transfer windows to be moved wherever they need to be moved so that they fall between the end of the old season and the start of the new season. So instead of having the specific dates they used to have, we'll just put the transfer window in, for example, those 20 days <laughs> that French players will have off between the playoffs and the start of the new season. And the idea there would be, I think, with like certain exceptions, Major League Soccer comes to mind. Usually you have like there's the FIFA international transfer window that is set from here to here. And then leagues can, like the Premier League did recently, uh, change to operate within that structure. Is that It's not as though they extended it two weeks past the FIFA date. They just cut it off before the season began. But that was sort of their choice as to how to operate within the window that's already established. So it's basically FIFA moving that window. Then clubs can choose how they want to operate within that new time frame. Yeah, I mean, FIFA says where the window is, and then mm-hmm. you can choose what type of dressing you put on it. <laughs> Perfect. I think. <laughs> oh, I see window. I see what you've done here. I think you meant literally dressing as in salad dressing, and I was confused for a moment. I'm like, I yeah, think you, you, squirt, yeah. you squirt salad dressing around the window. <laughs> That's how football works. Mm, you, what, other stories, what other stories have you got for me, Taylor? Um, the one that oh, was... So, sorry, can I, can I go back up just on one thing while we're talking about the transfer window? I'm sorry, this sure. just occurred to me. Part of that Christian Seifer interview mm-hmm. with the New York Times, just buried in there, he mentioned a sort of global collapse of transfer fees Mm -hmm. which really does make sense right i think a lot of teams are going to come out of this with less money and tighter budgets than they expected so i think he's then um extrapolating that people who are planning to pay big money for players will no longer have or be willing to pay big money for players and so he didn't use this example exactly but something like there were there was probably going to be a club that was going to pay a hundred and something million euros for Jaden sancho right Mm -hmm. That figure now may come downwards because there's just less money sloshing around. I haven't read much about this, but you saying that also makes me realize, because I was then thinking like, yeah, for some clubs, but like PSG, Man City are always going to have money until I remembered that you have the financial play regulations of it has to be based on like your actual income. And I'm realizing now that, yeah, if you don't have match day revenue, then there is going to have to be some sort of change to financial fair play. Because otherwise it's going to be like, well, you didn't make any money in the second half of the season because everything Mm -hmm. was behind closed doors. So then, like, you're not going to be able to sign anybody. So I'm imagining there'll have to be a lot of changes to the way things usually operate. And even then, I think, yeah, you'll have some clubs trying not to sell players and some clubs probably not being able to reinforce the way that they were formerly expected to be able to do. And if you, I mean, there is going to be some sort of global downturn in the economy, right? It's happening right now. So if, for example, um, Barcelona or Manchester City were about to sign an official, uh, an official Indian washing machine partner, right? Just to, <laughs> to mm-hmm. take a weird thing at random, but you know what I mean? One of those like regional global partnership type things they have. Um, that deal is going to be worth less like in late 2020 than it would have been if it was signed in mid 2019. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. All all the numbers are going to go down, and therefore you can expect transfer fees to also go down. 
Yeah, I mean, I would assume that said, I also would expect that some clubs will just be like, nope, we had a pre, pre, pre-agreement, so you have to pay us the exact amount of money even though you're bankrupt. That's how yeah. it works, so we're going to see you even more. It's going to be interesting. There are going to be some interesting um, transfer wranglings mm-hmm. going on. Maybe maybe Sunderland could even get a deal out of it. We'll, we'll see. Maybe. Um, so, Tyler, I, I interrupted... Uh, I interrupted throwing it to you mm-hmm. for the next news story because I thought that that transfer thing was just really important to get in there. Gotcha. Um, but so I apologize, uh, and also please tell me what your next bit of news was. Um, uh, my first bit of news uh, would be relating to the indictments that were sort of in the news and then out of the news yes. fairly quickly. Uh, oh, the yes. United States Department of Justice confirmed for the first time uh, that representatives working for Russia and Qatar bribed FIFA officials to secure hosting rights to the World Cup uh, in men's soccer. Um, Any details on that? Like how much? Was it just like a cash payment, or how did it work? Um, I mean, that it's a several hundred page long indictment. Uh, I, I read some of it. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's one of those situations in which the sort of distillation gets repeated over and over and over again, but there's sort of then repeating of the same common phrases without like kind of reading a lot into it. I did some of the reading as best I could, but it's basically saying that there are a, the, here's my quick explanation of what it is. Essentially, there was a group of people that sort of came to work together to benefit each other, a lot of it relating to TV broadcast rights. Uh, specifically uh, Copa Libertadores and the broadcast rights there and how people could like maximize making money while securing hosting rights. And then once you kind of have this network of shady connections and sort of uh, uh, backscratching and all that sort of thing, then that gets extended further and that's when World Cup uh, bribery comes into place because essentially if you already have a network in place of how to bribe people to make things happen, you're then going to utilize that whenever you need something to happen and that's sort of what happened here in the case of... uh, Fox being involved. Uh, we've probably heard a little bit about that. People have. Uh, Aaron Lopez, who's 49 years old, the president and chief executive of Fox International Channels. Uh, Carlos Martinez, president of Fox, uh, Fox Network Groups in Latin America, both uh, indicted in this uh, indictment, not surprisingly. And that's what it's about, essentially, is that they participated in the scheme that paid millions of dollars in bribes uh, for the Copa Lib. But then from that, they were able to use that same system to, uh, from what I could understand, basically figure out what other companies were going Going to be bidding to get the broadcast rights, so th- and yes. how they were going to do that, so that they could then use that in their own platform to bid more and offer more at the same time. The way, yeah, the way I understood it is that they paid money to have inside information to know what the rival bid was going to be. Right? Yes. Is that the the essence of it? Yes. So I think we understand what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Those people are going to be in big, big trouble. Um, what the thing I was really interested mm-hmm. in, um, I think I asked this at the top, was the the essential bribery around. Uh, actual World Cup hosting. Am I misunderstanding? Was was there no indictment for bribery in terms of Qatar wins the 2022 World Cup hosting rights and Russia wins the 2018 World Cup hosting mm-hmm. rights? Or was it only TV, the TV deals that no, is it, in the it's, indictment? The TV deals is sort of what connected it to Fox, but it's part of the larger conspiracy of this sort of ring of individuals. Some of the names you know, like Jack Warner uh, involved. Uh, the third, like another big one would be Ricardo Teixeira, uh, the former uh, head of the Brazilian FA. But it's essentially there are like official records uh, obviously they don't give you the evidence because that is you know for for trial if and when that occurs but they have at least enough evidence that three south american officials were directly paid uh, to vote for qatar i think at this mm. point like half of the people on the bid committee have been 
uh, accused of crimes, even if they're not necessarily like indicted. There's a- enough to suspect. And then there's other ones that we already know publicly, like two people caught on tape accepting bribes uh, to bid for Russian Qatar. Um, not not always together, we should add, because that does seem to be the way it gets reported is like bribes for this one and this one. And a lot of times it was one or the other. Sometimes that bribe was packaged together. But again, that comes down to that sort of circle of people who were yes. sort of helping facilitate other rela- so- relationships. The thing I always heard was that England were really dumb to send Prince William as their representative Mm -hmm. for the World Cup bid because he absolutely could not get involved in bribery. Yes, that that is definitely the case. But imagine the scandal if Prince William is like reaching across the table to Jack Warner saying, hey, if you vote for us, here's what I'm going to do for yeah. you. <laughs> yes, my, my brother's no longer a prince. You can be the prince now. Yeah. Um, but I think like, yes, that is certainly part of it. But I think it's also <laughs> Jack, that like Jack Warner, <laughs> Earl of Oxford. Yeah, perfect. How's that sound? Sure. Uh, Jack Warner is still fighting extradition, by the way. Uh, it's essentially the idea, I think, was that, like, yeah, that might well be, but also Prince William was never within that, like, other circle that we're talking about of all of these people who've yeah. been indicted. Like, it's like 60 people at this point. And the idea would be that if you come to me and I'm one of these individuals and you say, hey, I'll pay you a million dollars to vote for Qatar, uh, then I might be like, okay, I will accept that. And I also have four other people that I know who would probably do the same. And then there's the sort of networking connections that happen. And then once you get one of those people to flip, and on this occasion, several people have and have provided evidence, uh, including of wire fraud uh, and a couple other different uh, like uh, bank fraud, a couple other things, all of which occurred in the Eastern District of New York, which is why they then have the jurisdiction to file these yes. indictments. Because the finances, that's where it went through, right? right? Even mm-hmm. though none of the actual bidding or anything happened in the United States. Except that I believe there are American companies that were involved to some extent in funding some of the bribes. So I think that oh, is the wow. other way of, of kind of connecting these two things. Was there, I guess this doesn't fall under the indictment, right? There's, is there any suggestion that the 2022 World Cup could be taken away from Qatar? if there's evidence of bribery? It's obviously too late for 2018, right? Because that World Cup has been and gone yeah. and France have the trophy. Um, I, I don't think so because, to be honest, from my reading of this, and again, I am very much a layperson, it was more about the financial irregularities that occurred. And like one of the things it stresses is that basically these people were all doing their jobs. Like they were, there were people involved who it was their job to sell the broadcast rights for these these competitions. There were people who were supposed to buy the broadcast rights and they both did what they were supposed to do it's just a lot of the self-enriching that occurred behind the scenes to make that happen and because it was happening uh that is where they're sort of focused on they're focused on the financial impact and within that is sort of evidence of bribery that took place but it's not as though they're saying like you conducted this thing in order to get uh like the world cup to russia i think that's less of a concern as opposed to the financial irregularities money laundering everything else that occurred uh just as a product of the system that was in place in this sort of network of individuals i see so this isn't this isn't going to change where the World Cup is, it would take no. FIFA or some exactly. other organization to, lo- to look at the stuff that's in the indictment and mm-hmm. say, oh, we should change our decision. And the chances of that are probably quite slim, right? They are. And, and yeah. uh, I should add, like, the, uh, the two defendants I mentioned are the two accused, uh, uh, Lopez and uh, Martinez from the United States. Uh, their lawyers have said, like, well, these, you know, there was only, like, mentioned, like, in one paragraph of the indictment, which, number one, is not true. They're mentioned several times. Uh, but also, number two is that Every single person who's in this indictment is listed with a paragraph of like who they are. Jack Warner, as an example, has a paragraph and that paragraph says like 
publicly accepted money. Like, we know he did that. But then they're all sort of collectively referred to uh, as the conspirators, and then they're consistently referred to from there. So though those clients are only individually mentioned a couple times, the entire group as one is the thing that is sort of being pursued. It's why there's racketeering charges, essentially, because it's a network of individuals. Uh, And so it does feel as though a grand jury returning this indictment and the kind of stipulations that are in place uh, in New York, especially for returning an indictment, does feel like they're going to be in some trouble here. It doesn't feel like they're just sort of trying to pin a crime on somebody because a crime occurred. It's more that they have done the research, they have the documentation behind it. So I would expect some people to flip and uh, some people to find themselves in prison at the end of all this. Okay, well, I'll happily go visit them. Um, (laughs) I'm going to move us on to some more football news. Mario Goetze. Mario Mm. Goetze has made it known that his contract is expiring at the end of the season, whenever that may be. <laughs> but he has had it made it known that he is leaving Dortmund at the end of the season. Um, and he's gone as far as um, removing his father as his agent. He's, mm. So he's always been represented by his father, whose name I believe is Jürgen. Um, he is now with International Soccer Management, which is um, an agency owned by the Iranian uh, Reza Fazeli. Um, the weird part is that the, the agent he's taken on, most of his clients or his most high-profile clients are Dortmund players mm. and the Dortmund coach. So Emre Chan, uh, Mahmoud Dahoud, and coach Lucien Favre are all uh, um, ISM uh, clients. So it's really odd that he would get this agent who seems to be almost like the best connection he has is Dortmund. He's hired this agent to get him a move away from Dortmund. Oh, see, I think that it actually makes sense to me to some extent, because if you're surrounded by people who are all happy in their contracts at Dortmund and they all have the, the same agent oh. who got them those happy contracts, you'd be like, well, my agency hasn't made me very happy. Maybe I'll pursue these guys. So if so, yeah, like Goetz is in practice saying, "Hey guys, I'm looking for a, a professional yeah. agent. Like I'm not going to be represented by my dad anymore." Mm-hmm. And Emre Jan is like, "Hey, I know a guy." Yeah. Or Mahmoud Dahoud is like, "Hey, yeah. I know a guy." Yeah, yeah. Okay. we all know this one guy, and he's yeah. pretty good. I would also imagine that Lucien Favre is not too mad that Mario Goetz is leaving because he's not no. that often in Lucien Favre's starting eleven. No. Yeah, and I think probably takes up a decent uh, wage chunk uh, to still be yes. there, and then yeah, is sort of a luxury player at the very least at this point, or at the very most at this point. So yeah, you'd imagine getting rid of him frees up some wage, frees up some some money uh, to then pursue other players that do fit more so the system. So the, play, the clubs he's been linked with are Roma, Everton, Liverpool, and Milan. And then also DC United. Let's just throw them in there, because why not? That, that wouldn't be a bad move, right? That wouldn't be I, a bad move. I don't all. know. <laughs> it it's really depends because the injury history uh, combined with everything else. I mean, I'm assuming he'll still be able to play and still be able to function. But yeah, it does feel like it would be it would require a team that sort of know his unique strengths and his vulnerabilities and were willing to incorporate those into their plan. I actually think that Liverpool would be a great move um, unless he's expecting to start every week. So it depends what he wants, right? If he wants to be just part of somewhere that wins championships, he could go to Liverpool and be like a Jordan Shakiri style squad player. Could he though? Because isn't a big part of it like his fitness and his pace? And isn't that part of the reason why he struggled at Bayern? I mean, because he couldn't play Pep's sort of high pressing, high intensity system? To be fair, when he was at Bayern, it was before the metabolic disease was discovered. Um, the metabolic disease was discovered after mm-hmm. he went back to Dortmund. So that's been discovered and treated. And he definitely isn't as quick as when he was younger. But like last last year, he played plenty of games and was quite influential as part of the Dortmund uh, title attempt, right? It's this year that he seems to have not played as much for Dortmund. And I now think that maybe all along he was planning to leave. And that may be why Lucien Favre didn't include him in his first team all that much. Yeah, 
All right. I mean, I I I I think of like a Papu Gomez situation at Atalanta, where that team is kind of entirely ba- built around like, yeah, do whatever you feel like, like makes you the most comfortable and makes you be the best player, and we'll kind of function within that system. I think if a team built themselves around Gutsa and that does feel like an MLS team, uh, that might maybe get the the absolute best out of him. So let's keep an eye on where Mario Gutsa right. um, ends excited. up signing that next contract what, what else you got for me Tyler you I mean it, the news? it could be Barcelona although Barcelona's system at the moment is more about uh infighting and political intrigue uh, because... uh yeah so all I saw was that a bunch of people resigned what mm-hmm. is going on at Barcelona sure so it's essentially it all relates uh to President uh Josep Maria Bartomeu uh Bartomeu uh was there was a move to oust him as president in I believe February very least earlier this year a lot of it relating uh to basically his sort of relations with the squad at the time, combined with sacking Ernesto Valverde without having really a plan in place, the oh, sort of so failures in not- the transfer market with Braithwaite, uh, and then having to rely on the emergency loan to get Braithwaite in, the emergency kind of provision to get Braithwaite in. There's when been a feeling say- of a lack of planning. When you say relationship with the squad, you mean mm-hmm. bad relationship with the squad? Yeah, because there's much more on that one uh, in terms of why things have gotten so bad. But that was why they kind of moved against him. That did not work. He did not step down. He did not move the date of elections forward because he's going to be president until 2021. Um, and so once that didn't work, it seems as though, from what I understand, he requested four board members step down. It was the four that he, I think, perceived as being the most against him. Then two other board members stepped down uh, Jordi Calsamilia and Maria Teixedor. I apologize if I butchered both of those, but those were unexpected. And it does bring the board members, like the number of board members down below what it's supposed to be. There has to be a minimum of 14 board members right now. They have 13. There are more resignations expected. And that could then force uh, action in terms of moving the uh, election date further up so that then he could be removed. And so that's that's a big part of where things are is that he right now, I believe, is like president and vice president of Barcelona because of the way things have gone since he kind of came into power, I believe, back in 2014, 2015. So is there any indication that this works, that this will remove him? Or is he just going to happily... Uh, carry on without without those six people that resigned. Yeah, I, I believe he has announced that he plans to stay in power. He doesn't plan to step down. He doesn't plan to move the election date at all. Um, what I think will kind of maybe force him to the table is the situation with the squad. Uh, because there have been other things that we can talk about, like the whole allegation that they were paying people to give them favorable coverage and to sort of criticize the players. And that is a thing that has led to a lot of disunity within the ranks. But the biggest thing has been recently the handling of uh, player pay cuts. Because Barcelona announced last week they're applying for essentially relief from the government. It allows companies to impose a temporary pay cut of up to 70% on their employees during the crisis. So it's not quite they're like applying for a loan, but they're triggering this provision that in a crisis crisis, they can reduce their employee wages by 70%. But Spanish law requires it to be applied unilaterally, which means all players would then only get 30% of their wages. Uh, And the problem here is that the players aren't opposed to that. It's that it was announced before they had agreed to anything. So they didn't really consult the players and tell them this was going to happen. They just sort of did it. And then when the players protested, the narrative then became, well, it's these players who are greedy and they don't want to give up money to help out the club and to help people who are in unfortunate situations. And I, from what I understand, it's not that. It's that the players basically feel like we weren't consulted at all before this happened. We weren't allowed to give our input about how it could happen, about what we could do to facilitate it. And also Messi pointed out that they have been working to give money. They've already taken voluntary pay cuts and they 
had already agreed that they would for as long as the state of alarm continued in Spain. So it sort of is like continued ostracizing of the players from the president of the club. And I think for a while he's felt like that wasn't an issue because he had all the power as people sort of leave the board as it becomes more and more public that he doesn't have the backing and then also doesn't have the backing of players like Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez. I think maybe he's feeling a slightly more vulnerable, which is not a good place for a person like him to be. Vulnerability tends to lead to irrational decisions uh, in my experience. So here's my guess then, based mm. on just a little knowledge I have from listening to what you just told me. Yeah. He sticks around until the election, mm-hmm. making horrible, horrible decisions, and then gets voted out. I mean, that could, he is still under indictment as well uh, for, uh, I believe, tax evasion charges relating to the Neymar transfer. Like that's st- He is still uh, set to stand trial. Uh, his appeal was thrown out. So maybe he goes to jail and thus has to re- remove himself. But like, it's situations like that. He could like run from jail like they're doing Goodfellas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's just slicing that garlic real thin. I mean, Richmond had a delegate yeah. who was uh, an elected official while also in jail. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> it could work. Maybe that's um, how it'll go down. Yeah, I mean, but I, I looked up sort of why things have gotten so bad, and it really is a history of uh, financial decisions that haven't made a lot of sense for any number of reasons combined with player signings and wages that also haven't made sense. So worth remembering, uh, Bartomeu is the one who changes it to allow Qatar to sponsor the shirt. They move from no sponsor to UNICEF to Qatar. Uh, he's he's uh, part and parcel of that. There's sort of forcing out players that have been within the system, like Thiago. There's allegations that he is like directly responsible for Pep Guardiola, not wanting to stay at Barcelona anymore. Then there's his involvement in the Neymar deal, bringing in players that didn't justify the wages that they were on and sort of corrupting, if you want to go that route, the system of like La Masia and the valuation of young players and everything like that. So it feels as though he is sort of being looked at as this person who has fundamentally betrayed the Barcelona DNA and then simultaneously betrayed the squad, if the allegations are true, by like sort of leaking information that makes them look bad to make himself look better by comparison. Wow. So he sounds like he's all alone, basically. So like I said, that... He's going to get voted out, surely, right? Especially if the players like yeah. let it be known that they, they're not in favor of him. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's going to be a year and a bit of him just making wild decisions to try and stay in power. Yes. I bet there'll be some big promises about who they sign. I wouldn't be surprised if Barcelona are a team that go swinging in the transfer market. Yeah, I think that's probably safe to say. <laughs> All right, um, I've got a story for you hmm. that's maybe, maybe a little more positive. It's the hashtag players together um, thing that's happened in England, led by Jordan Henderson and Premier League captains. And I, I like to think that this was led by Jordan Henderson, because if you're the Premier League captain that's top of the league, you get to lead the initiative. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works, right? <laughs> so this isn't an initiative for an, an initiative. This is an initiative for Premier League players to get together and donate to a thing called NHS Charities Together which is essentially an umbrella organization for all National Health Service-related charities. So the NHS is publicly funded, right, by tax and national insurance. Uh, But the NHS charities together is what sort of tops it up, like gives extra money to the NHS in places where extra money is needed. So the idea with Players Together is that they'll... These these Premier League players will give money so that it can go um, directly to NHS charities. Okay. That that, that seems uh, pretty effective to me. I like NHS being funded. So does Sir Alex Ferguson. He likes the he NHS does. a lot, and that's kind of yeah. all I need to know. <laughs> there we go. That The man's word is good enough for you. Pretty um, much. What's really interesting is the um, the uh, statement that Hashtag Players Together, which is what they're calling the organization, put out, um, says very specifically, Players Together is about we, as players, collaborating together 
redundant word there, to create a voluntary initiative separate to any other club and league conversations that can help get much needed funds to those that need it right now. So this really is the players acting completely separately from the league or or from their teams. And I find it interesting that they felt the need to say that. And and also, I feel like it's interesting that they almost certainly uh, cooperated with a PR firm because yeah. collaborating together does feel like, well, collaborating makes it sound like we're all like working together on some scheme. Let's make it together. And then it sounds like togetherness. <laughs> we'll use both words and that way we uh, cover all bases. Speaking of PR, I think this is a little bit about um, the making sure that the players, Premier League players mm-hmm. in general, have a good name. Uh, because there's been a lot of controversy in England about whether they should take pay cuts and how much they should take pay cuts. And different clubs have agreed to do different things, right? Um, but there's there's not been one big broad agreement. Like, for mm-hmm. example, there has been in Germany, as I understand it. Um, this was, again, in the Christian Seifert uh, story in the New York Times by Tarek Panja. Um I think a thing that happened is like the bigger clubs, the players took a certain pay cut and at smaller clubs, the pay cut was a little bit lower. And Seifert said he's, he's kind of surprised why like such a, it's so simple. Why hasn't that happened in other leagues? And maybe that's just Seifert trying to make the Bundesliga look good compared to, uh, compared to what's going on in other leagues. I mean, in, does... a lot, in a lot of ways, this rescues the Premier League players reputation because now they can say we're giving money direct to the NHS. I'm going to go ahead, go ahead and paint with a very broad brush here, but that does feel like a lot of my interactions with uh, uh, Germans, Manuel, uh, I love Manuel, but like th- there is that element of like, why doesn't everyone just do it the way we do it in Germany? It's the way that makes the most sense and it's always the best. And I, I mean, do feel like that kind see of- if yeah, it's not wrong. No, he's not, but I just, that feels like uh, Douglas Adams in his book, uh, Last Chance to See, has a whole thing about like how he's, he's on a trip with Germans and how German tourists are the worst because they just keep being like, why don't you have this? Of course you are going to need this. And they have everything prepared and he has nothing prepared. And it yeah. feels like similarly, there's the German idea, like, yeah, why don't you just do it this way? It makes the most sense. And it's like, well, because there are other things in place, not saying they're <laughs> right, not saying they're wrong, but like they are two uniquely different countries is all I'm saying. <laughs> Right, but I think Douglas Adams was getting sunburn and the Germans were saying, hey, we wore sunblock. Why don't you have sunblock? You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I think it was to the extent of like they had like like cooking kitchens in their like uh, travel packs somehow and Douglas Adams was eating like cold beans. <laughs> I know which one sounds better. Yeah. Cold beans, right? So, obviously. Obviously, obviously. Yeah. So hashtag players together. That is the initiative. And just for those, um, if you're in the US and you don't know about what's going on with the National Health Service, right now they are the most popular people in England is the NHS. Mm-hmm. Every Thursday at eight o'clock, everybody in England steps out of their front door and gives a big minutes round of applause to uh, NHS workers. I assume, well, you say they're the most popular. I, I assume it still goes Adele, number one, always, and then at whoever else underneath. Joint number one, Adele okay. and the NHS. Ooh, right wow. Now. Yeah. Wow. She's letting them be joint number one. That's very she kind is. of her. She's so precious. <laughs> you got any She's more so stories wonderful. for me, Tyler? Um, I, I have two, but I feel like you have done much more reading on them because I want to talk Carly Lloyd and I want to talk Ireland. Okay, let's start with Carly Lloyd then. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is interesting. Carly Lloyd uh, shared an interview with Grant Wall um, talking about how she would like the culture of the men's national team and the women's national team to change by essentially spending more time together. And she says, we need everybody to feel united. I wish that we integrated more with the men's team. I wish that we had camps side by side. Maybe for the January camps, we could all go to the same place and just have a bit more interaction. Because as long as I've played on the national team, that's never really happened. Here's the key part for me, Taya. The slogan, one nation, one team, I think we really need to we really need to kind of bridge that. <laughs> Meaning uh, yeah, that'd be fine. make it real. <laughs> 
co-ed 11 is clearly what she's talking about i thought this was interesting she's not that's the point she's not actually i, know, actually, I want to be really i want to be really really specific about this mm-hmm. because i saw grant tweet the story out after he'd written it right mm-hmm. um and there was the mention of um this is lloyd's exact quote i'm not saying we need integrated practices but i think it would be fun maybe to do some rondos with the guys intermingle um and you know just get to know them a little bit yeah. so that we're all friends and when we watch them play we can be like hey i know that guy right all the responses to the tweet of Grant promoting the story were um, they can't have men and women train together as if like she was proposing that like every training camp now was always men's and women's national teams um, intermingled. It so, was uh, weird that it was weird that Marindin, the former head of the FA, came out of his tomb to protest this decision or this idea. I thought that was that was a, a lot that it was going against the foundations of decency in football that he had uh, to, come to expect. To be fair to Marindon, when he came out of his tomb, he said, "Yes, I agree with equal pay. You should all be paid zero." <laughs> It's funny because he would have said that. <laughs> At least the English game version would have. Um, yeah, and and like and that's frustrating because like I understand entirely what Carly Lloyd is saying because we both like we we still do uh, practice sessions for like our adult amateur team that we uh, like manage, coach, whatever. And there's always that thing before practice starts and even afterwards of people kind of kicking around and you know just talking, uh, talking trash, shooting the whatever. Since we're uh, family friendly, uh, but you you the have those moments ball. and then the training starts. Yeah, exactly. And then training starts and you kind of get into the rhythms of things and it's much less relaxed. But you have that sort of period of time when you're kind of hanging out, or there'll be the moments afterwards when people like stay around to hit free kicks and you could totally understand what she's saying that training has ended you know like maybe they have some like crossbar competition or stuff like that it could just be like more of a like an opportunity to bond and be less otherized which is a thing that like you kind of assume already happens you assume that like oh they both play for the national team they must all attend the national team mixers that definitely don't occur (laughs) but in my mind do occur so to get them a little bit more yeah exactly exactly so to get them all a bit more yeah unified and together i like that but can i tell you the real selling point here that we're overlooking yeah. It's a thing that uh, Grant Wall, uh, Grant Wall, formerly of Sports Illustrated, we should say, commiserations to Grant. Um, but uh, I should add that they talk about how this has happened before, Daryl. Did you read that part? Yes, I did. Yes, I yeah. did. And what we need, Daryl, the argument of uh, creating super players uh, is a good one. And the idea that in 1994, the U.S. men's national team, the U.S. women's national team staying at the same hotel, which is when Claudia Reyna met his wife, Danielle, uh, you know, parents to Giovanni Reyna. So we have Gio Reyna because this existed. Maybe this happens again. And now we get a bunch more uh, superhumans who can win World Cups, both on the men's and women's sides. I want to defend Grant Wall by specifically mm-hmm. saying that he specifically said that's not the good reason to do it. And I yes, think he but- said in any podcaster who proposes that, it's in very poor taste. Uh, do you not want superhumans? Because this is how you get superhumans, Daryl. Here's, here's what I actually think we would get with this, is the possibility of men's national team and women's national team actually coming together and mm-hmm. thinking, oh, we should collectively bargain as well as collectively rondo. Yeah, I mean, I think yes, because once you have a friendship and relationships there, sometimes that leads to global conspiracies and you get indictments. But sometimes it leads to friendships that basically mean that like, there's more commonality, there's more common cause. Once you can put a like more human face and experience on a thing, the harder it is to then be like, well, that thing shouldn't be properly funded. So I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of building chemistry and overall morale for the U.S. soccer program. So we're we giving Carly Lowe's proposal the TSS stamp of approval? I think, I mean, yeah, because January camp was already itself kind of experimental. So why not have, have it be even more experimental? Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. You mentioned uh, Mick McCarthy, right? Mm-hmm. Stephen Kenny. Um, the reason I was interested in this story is it because to me, it seems like the first, 
the Irish national team has made the first move of the coronavirus, right? Everybody else has just like paused and said, okay, we'll pick up where we left off. The Irish national team has gone and replaced Mick McCarthy, who was planning to lead Ireland through the Euro 2020 playoffs and hopefully into the Euro 2020 tournament. So here's what happened. Back in 2018, Stephen Kenny was appointed U21 Ireland manager at the same time that Mick McCarthy was appointed Ireland manager. And there was a succession plan, right? So after Euro 2020, uh, Kenny was going to take over and McCarthy would step down. Oh, that's interesting because I have yeah. read, I, I, have, I have a question about that. But yeah, please continue. So that was the long-term plan, right? Mick McCarthy would oversee Euro 2020. Then he would go off into the distance. And this younger manager, Stephen Kenny, who's coached, he's coaching like Scotland, Northern Ireland and Ireland, um, would take over and he'd be the Irish manager. But when Euro 2020 got pushed back a year, the, the uh, FAI, Football Association of Ireland, just said, you know what? Let's do it now. And they just ushered Mick McCarthy out the door and said, Stephen Kenny, you're now in charge and you've got a year to prepare for Euro 2021. Hmm. So I'm confused by this because one thing I read was pointing out that uh, Robbie Keane had a longer contract than Mick McCarthy or anybody else on the staff. And there was speculation that that was because Robbie Keane was supposed to take over and become the head coach after learning under Mick McCarthy. So you're saying that that's maybe more so speculation and less so what was actually going to happen? Yeah, I think it's 100% speculation. Okay. Yeah, like right. The length of his contract um, d- doesn't interfere with the idea that this Kenny replacement plan has... I think, like, been public record for quite a long time. All right. So maybe he was just supposed to be the, like, intermediary figure or, like, the sort of one that bridges the gaps between the two? Sort of yeah, like, like, I, like, I do like know, Ryan Giggs with Van Hall or something like well, that. Well, I've been reading some stories that Kenny is, I think, isn't sure if he's going to keep Robbie Keane on right. or not, right? Because mm-hmm. it's his decision about who his staff is versus what the FAI want his, I his staff said, to be. Yeah, I think he said as delicately as possible, like, no. <laughs> I'm not gonna, He didn't say no, but it was very much like, I have my own ideas and, you know, I wanted to talk to Robbie about it, but the situation doesn't allow for that. So dot dot dot. That's yeah. That's kind of my understanding of it. My other understanding of this is that I know the FAI is not that well run financially. So my guess is that they looked at the numbers and saw what they were paying Mick McCarthy and what they were planning to pay Stephen Kenny and thought, how about if we just make this move now instead of extending Mick's contract by a year, which would cost us X, versus bringing there Stephen in is. now would cost us X that, minus. That some, makes some a lot more sense. That yeah. makes a lot more sense. Because even then, well, yeah, because I was going to say like, yeah, but I, I thought you were saying like because his contract expires and so they don't want to. But then if he has a contract, they would have had to pay that no matter what. But you're right that they would have had to extend it by a year. So then you have the additional salary plus the additional year. That makes a lot more sense as to why you would move now. It's a shame for Mick McCarthy, you have to say. But yes, uh, it is probably the financially prudent decision from the FAI. There we go. A similar-ish thing has happened in uh, Denmark, where Ega Haraday was the uh, the coach. He's an older older coach. He was the Denmark national team manager. Um, his contract was due to expire on the 31st of July, and he was going to be replaced by the younger former Norgeland coach, Kasper Hjulmund. These are guys I know that most people will not won't know the names, right? Because these are not famous, famous uh, people. And the Danish FA have just said, yeah, we're going to let the contract expire, and then Hjulmund will take over in August. So they've done a similar thing, but without without the immediate effect that the, the Irish FA have gone for. Excuse me, mm. the Football Association of Ireland have gone for. Yeah, get it together, sir. Well, get the Irish FA is the Northern Irish FA. Oh, okay. Yeah, then doubly get it together. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll sort of talk about Northern Ireland a little bit later on of the show, uh, uh, peripherally. Uh, but any sooner other news rather, stories? I think sooner rather than later, because I have no more news stories. All to right. Say. Well, uh, there have been other ones, uh, certainly, and we'll maybe talk more about them as situations develop and more news becomes available. But for now, we're going to focus on Settle Until I Die because I'm sort of obsessed with it. 
So Sunderland Till I Die, mm-hmm. episode four. It's titled Playing Poker, which I think is a really good title yeah. uh, for this episode. It is the January transfer window episode. And the the raw basics of what happens in this episode is Josh Madger, whose contract was expiring in the summer, um, leaves. Mm-hmm. He leaves in January. He goes to Bordeaux. And then you see uh, the owner, Stuart Donald, and his and his staff trying to bring in a replacement striker before the end of the January transfer window. Uh, the end result is that they essentially pay a lot more money than they had planned for Will Grigg to get him in from Wigan. That's the absolute basics of what happens in this episode. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to pick apart here, right, Taylor? Oh, yeah, there is. There's so much going on. And this was, I think, uh, I, I saw it described as the most intense episode. I think yeah. that's probably fair, at least for this season. Because I did go back and watch season one, sort of to get an understanding of maybe what the, these owner, this ownership group was inheriting. And it is really toxic from the outset in that season. And I think it's worth remembering that when we do look at this season and kind of the work being done. Because I think I better understand Stuart Donald, Charlie Methven a little bit in looking at what happened last year. I still say... Um, I don't blame them. Like they didn't do anything mm-hmm. morally wrong. I think they panicked and screwed up this January transfer window. There. Oh, there, you will get no argument from me. I think okay. this is basically what we saw in the first season. I'm not going to go too into detail on that. I just want to say it's like basically a billionaire owner stops funding the club, and that sort of has been the way they operated. And now that that's not happening, they're in free fall, and they can't afford anything, and everything is bad. And so that's one story. This story, this season, seems to be much more so like I'm not trying to say like Stuart Donald has no experience he had owned a club he had owned shares in another club he has to sell one club to buy Sunderland Eastly. but I do think uh yes but I do think uh that we're seeing sort of what happens when you take on this higher profile club and maybe aren't quite ready for it again I'm not trying to say like he's in over his head or anything like that although at times he does seem to be but it's the naivete that I think you see a lot especially in this episode and it starts they kind of have it really quickly glossed over but he essentially goes on air and promises that there will be two strikers signed and as soon as he says we're bringing in two strikers he tells the fans we're bringing in two strikers so there's a thing that you can then observe as to whether or not that's happened if you're 0 for 2 you're 0 for 2 they can see that but more importantly in in terms of this conversation for this show he literally tells every club in in the country we need two strikers which means add another however many million onto that price tag i think there's a naivety to it and especially if you contrast how they behave in the transfer window with all the scenes from previous episodes mm-hmm. of Stuart Donald himself looking at the books and saying, okay, we need to cut here, we need to cut there. Oh, they've overspent on this like cryo thing that um, used to be just Martin Bain used to go in there for his back and no one uses it and it costs $600,000. Like he's pointing out all these areas where the club was overspending. And then the first January transfer window, what does he do? Absolutely panic and overspend on a player. Yeah. Uh, can we go can we go back uh, to, to Bain for a moment? Because I think he's it's he plays an interesting role in all of this uh, with the Josh Madger transfer. Can we talk Josh Madger? Do you want to go to Will Grigg first? Let's go Josh Madger. Like, let's okay. go chronologically. Yeah. So Josh Madger, um, just to set the scene for people, mm-hmm. um, he's a young player. He was like he made a couple of first team appearances last season. So that right. was like the first season of Sunderland until I die. Um, he enters this season as a young player, um, scores a load of goals. He's the hero of the team. Um, but his contract is expiring in the summer and he's not being paid very much. They don't say exactly how much, but we know, right? They, they mm-hmm. don't say how much on the show, but we've looked it up. Yeah. Um, he does not want to, or his agent and he do not want to sign a new contract with Sunderland. They know that they can leave in the summer. Um, and so they start talking to Bordeaux and it, like he basically signs a deal with Bordeaux. So mm-hmm. Josh Maja, their star player, is on the way out. 
I think he, like he, Josh Maja, from everything I've read, might take issue with that, and might he might try to argue that he was happy to stay. But I think, for the most part, yes, I think he wanted to leave and recognized that he could move to Ligue 1 and start for Bordeaux or at least play a big role for them. Like that is more appealing than playing for Sunderland in League One, who seem like maybe there's a chance they're going to stay in League One. So when Stuart Donald asked that question of why would you leave, I think that's the answer. Mm-hmm. But I think we should remember or should note that Martin Bain, uh, before he stepped down or uh, left by mutual consent, he did recommend to them that they signed Josh Maja like in June. Uh, he said like that it's going to be to a, a star contract. player. Yes, you should lock him down now because his contract is expiring. You're going to have to rely on him. He's going to respond, and then you're going to be in the situation that they find themselves in. To his credit, Stuart Donald basically said, I was trying to do that, but I basically could not start negotiations because I was trying to figure everything out. I could not start until September, and by then he was already scoring goals. So every time we would go to start like preparing an offer for him, he would score two more goals, and then we had to sort of reevaluate that on the fly. That's his way of looking at it, uh, I think, in retrospect. But what we know now is that he was offered uh, £2,750 a week in October, rising to about 5000 if they made the championship. That offer, which we do see in the last episode, is increased to 5000 a week, rising to 7000 if they make the championship. Josh Maja, for his part, I think, uh, is asking for 8000 with a $3.5 million buyout clause, again with the idea that then if he did move, Sunderland would sort of be financially remunerated and made a little bit whole by that. And so that is the kind of situation we move into in January. But when, Taylor, Taylor yeah. you've missed the headline. His mm-hmm. current wage was £700 a week. Exactly. Which is, yeah. you know, it's not bad money for a normal person, Mm-mm. but for a star footballer, £700 oh. a week is very much a sort of youth team contract, right? It is. And on top of that, thank you for remembering to point that out, because a big sticking point was that when they did make that secondary offer in November, number one, they gave him one week to respond, and then that was going to be it. They were trying to play hardball. But number two, there were no performance incentives. There were no bonuses. There were no signing on fees. And for a person who's only been making such a low amount of money per week, you would usually get some sort of bonus to sort of reward them and also show them that you're kind of financially committed to them that none of that was offered I think was also a sort of moment for Josh Maja of these people might not be able to meet what I'm what I feel I'm worth and we know there are people out there who will and here's what happens as we understand it is um, Bordeaux reach out because they can start negotiating a contract with him because his contract Mm -hmm. expires in the summer Um, they seem to negotiate a deal which I think would have sent Josh Maja there in the summer Right? Yes. So he would have stayed at Sunderland on his £700 a week until the summer, and then he would have gone uh, to Bordeaux technically for free, as in there's no transfer fee, but Sunderland would have been paid um, sort of training compensation. 500000 uh, About About 500000 right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what they approximately calculated it at. These things often get settled by like mm-hmm. a tribunal type thing, but not like proper transfer fee money. Um Instead, this isn't in Netflix. In Netflix, no. I die. This isn't in the episode. Mm. But what we understand is that once they realised that was happening, they instead tried to get Bordeaux to pay money now to get him in January instead of in the summer because they wanted the money. And is by that, all is accounts, that fair? yes. And by all accounts, it sounds like because Maja and his agent had already agreed to terms with Bordeaux, they actually had to get Maja and his agent to propose the idea of, but if you pay a fee now, you can have me now. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like they had to then like kind of rely on him to make sure that Sunderland got some compensation, uh, albeit with the exchange that he would then leave in January. But like the way it's kind of portrayed, it almost seems as though like January 1st, he is suddenly in France and Stuart, uh, Stuart Donald, I always want to call him Stuart Pierce. Stuart Donald's hand is sort of forced by the issue. And that's why I was so confused when he says he gets the call from Jack Ross being like, thanks for letting me know that he was being sold. And it was like, well, my, like I didn't know he was being sold. It's not my fault. And I was very confused because that's not how that happens. But understanding the kind of 
background behind it, it makes more sense now that, well, he had already agreed, so we wanted to get something out of it. He also adds, and this is the thing they glossed over as well, do you remember the part where he says, like, English clubs have scouted him, but the agent has previous with taking players abroad? Yeah. So there's an idea there that basically there's the England tax, and they know that if, say, Tottenham had bid for him, it would have been probably a couple million more because selling an English player to an English club is always going to be a little bit more expensive. And so mm-hmm. that was, I think, what they were counting on. And when they realize he's going to Europe, I think they suddenly realize not only is he going to leave, but he's going to leave and we're not going to get nearly as much money. And I think that's where some of the panic starts to set in. And we should let people know that where we're getting this information from that's mm-hmm. not in the documentary, it's essentially, this is what I did. I'm not sure what you did, Taylor, but I went back and read a lot of Chronicle yep. stories, Sunderland Chronicle, local stories who had the information at the time, right? So essentially some journalists who are well-connected who kind of knew what, were, they knew what was going on behind the scenes. Here's what I discovered. In the, in the documentary, um, in Sunderland Till I Die, they talk about a figure of 1.5 million euros, right? Mm-hmm. 1.5 million euros. The actual fee was 1.5 million upfront, so paid in January to Sunderland, rising to 3.5 million um, with uh, appearance fees, essentially. So once yeah. Josh Madger plays a certain amount of games for Bordeaux, it'll be 3.5 million euros and i also read about a 10 percent sell-on fee mm-hmm. so if josh Madger moves for say 10 million which is not unrealistic right because i think he's actually done okay he had a, i think he broke his leg i had a horrible injury but either side of that he's done quite well for bordeaux and if he moves for 10 million they get another million on top of that or 10 percent of whatever the eventual transfer fee is i would argue for a player with only six months on his contract they actually yeah. got a decent amount of money for him yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, once like the rising to and, and the uh, sell-on fee, once those are triggered, yes, I would agree. The 1.5 million seems really, really low, and they say that they say like that's not enough. I think Aiden McGeady says like it's going to be hard to replace him, and especially for that amount of money or something along yep. those lines. But I think it's also interesting, and this isn't a criticism. It's just again the sort of what I'm enjoying about Sunderland until I die is the obvious narrative, but then these sort of little wrinkles in there that I'm like, huh, like what does that mean exactly? Because there's a moment when Stuart Donald says. Like the sale of Josh Maja essentially or effectively pays for Will Grigg. But then when you hear 1.5 and then you see the numbers or hear the numbers associated with the eventual transfer of Will Grigg, those don't add up. Yep. But when you look at it from the rising to 3.5 million, mm-hmm. then you see where he's coming from. So you're definitely getting a little bit of the PR spin to it, but it's not entirely fictional, which at times I kind of thought it was watching that, uh, watching some of the moments in the series. Before we move on to Will Grigg, I want to propose um, what I think, in hindsight, Sunderland should have done. When they realized Josh Madger was moving to Bordeaux in the summer, I would have kept Josh Madger for the rest of the season on his £700 a week deal, Mm -hmm. um, let him play it out, knowing that he's moving to Bordeaux in the summer. Because it turns out, I think... Josh Madger is irreplaceable, um, that he was really like in a rare vein of form. And I think it's less of a gamble to keep paying him a very low amount of money if he won't sign a new contract and just hope that then he gets you promoted rather than selling him and hoping to try and replace him. Yeah. So I want to I want to respond to that like entire like that directly. But first, I want to add one more thing, which is the other idea was that they could have just met his agreement or met his expectations, which was what, seven, eight thousand a week. And that then the total wages at the end of that season is still less than what you would have paid for Will Grigg. And then you have him locked down, albeit though that you're committed to paying him a lot more money that you might not be able to afford. But if you get promoted, then you can. But, but wait, there's are also you, an are idea. Are you saying that if, if they'd offered him eight thousand a week, he would have signed? 
Because that was he, that's what he said. Yes, ah, that's, he said that's what that Josh Maja said. He said yes uh, via re, via his representatives. I believe they said like he never wanted to. Uh, he he never wanted to leave is what they say. I don't believe that. But he basically is saying like if they had met it, then that's essentially what he was being offered. So why wouldn't he then stay at a club where he's already settled? Whether or not you want to believe that, there is that idea that they would have ended up paying him two hundred thousand, which is still less than they would have paid. But to your point, I think what it all goes back to because you're right, it makes sense to like let that contract expire. He'll still perform for us. He's still a good guy. But I like, like Jack Ross talked about how he came back at the end of the season and like gave gifts and handwritten notes and yeah. commiserations and all this stuff. So I think he was connected to the club, and I think there's an idea he would have given his all. Till the end of the season, because he would have wanted to be remembered positively. If he's the guy that gets them promotion, that's and a good way to go out. And he would have been cheap. He still would have been seven hundred pounds a week if he wasn't signing a new deal. Exactly. You, you wouldn't have been spending much money, and you would have been getting his goals, assuming he was still happy. Yeah, but as Stuart Donald said in the last episode, if we're the ones who let Josh Maja go, like we're gonna look like proper numpties or something like that. And it goes back to him from the very first episode saying, like, I'm very emotional. I get very emotionally connected, and I think he sees the response that the fans had to the last ownership group and the failure to bring in players and the, and it just did not look like they cared about the club and weren't investing properly. And so if they lose this youth prospect without any, any money and without reinforcing, it sort of looks like, oh, you guys are just content to let things sort of go on the decline. And I don't think that's really what would have happened, but I think that's how he sees it. And that sort of motivates him to do so, something. So you arguing that Stuart Donald is too concerned about how things look to Sunderland fans yes. versus what's a good decision for Sunderland Association Football Club? Because yes. if so, I'm in 100% agreement because that's what plays out when they decide to try and sign Will Grigg, which I yeah. am ready to talk about now. I am as well, but I want to add my final little thing, which is uh, from Bill Simmons. I don't always quote Bill Simmons, but um, for this point, I will. He was the one to introduce me to the idea to extend the gambling analogy that you never want to gamble because you need to gamble. As in, I am $100 in the hole. I have to make that $100 back or I am in trouble. Uh, if you're gambling because you feel Bill like Simmons gambling. Bill Simmons introduced you to that? That's just yeah. common sense. I, well, I think I think I was not much for gambling, and this was when I was like, 20 is when I first started reading Bill Simmons or 21. Uh, and I like, I didn't really gamble. I played poker, but it, but it really, it occurred to me then that like the times that I would play poker and it was like, I was a college student. I like happened to have 10 bucks, but it was that 10 bucks I kind of needed. That was when I would be way too serious and not play very well. If you're relaxed and sort of don't feel that pressure, maybe you make better decisions. You're less in the like, Oh no, I, I could lose it all. I'm so scared. And I think. That looking at Stuart Donald, essentially, I think he is gambling because he has to at this point in his mind. And as a result, stops making rational decisions, stops really listening to reason, saying like, hey, man, you just got to walk away from the table right now. He keeps kind of doubling down, thinking that it will be that doubling down that gets him out of trouble. And in reality, it seems to be that doubling down that's getting him into more trouble. Because in the end, right, so they do chase Will Grigg, right? Mm -hmm. And Jack Ross has said that Will Grigg is a striker that he wanted. But that was before Josh Madger was leaving, it's worth noting, right? I think in Jack Ross's ideal situation, he's got mm -hmm. Josh Madger and Will Grigg as his two strikers. Yeah. Um, so once Madger has been sold, yeah, Stuart Donald is really all in on, we've got to buy Will Grigg, right? And the initial offer, I believe, is a million. And quite early on in the episode, he um, asks somebody to call back somebody at Wigan, which is where mm -hmm. Will Grigg is, and say, you've told us a million, we've got a million and a quarter, take it or leave it now, that is it. Yep. He ends up signing, they end up signing him for mm -hmm. 3 million plus a future possible 1 million if they get, I think if they get promoted. Yes. So, um, so that's I, a lot more is what I'm saying. Then yes, when he says that, when someone says that's as high as I'll go, that is it. Like you should mean it when you say it. 
So this is this is the naivete, though, again, coming back, because, again, reading more about this afterwards and some interviews with Stuart Donald, he basically says that we had sources tell us that uh, Wigan had like we're going to tr- not transfer list in like the FIFA video game sense, but essentially had made it known that Will Grigg was available. They didn't need him anymore. And he was available for one million pounds. So they were early on trying to underbid that because they thought, oh, if they don't want him and they're asking a million, we'll offer 750000 and see what they say. And so he still has this million in his head, and that's why he's at a million and then 1.25. And then I think what happened is he was then told, like, yeah, that was never a thing. We were never going to sell him for a million. But at that point, he is now very publicly displayed, and the bids are very public, that they are in for Will Grigg. And I think he then realizes, I'm going to have to spend more because one million was never the number. But I think simultaneously, he can't let go of the idea that he could have gotten him for one million. So he keeps trying to nickel and dime it, but that's never going to happen. And by the end, he can't nickel and dime, so he has to then just splash a bunch of money because he has to make this move happen. I mean, this is where the episode title comes from, right? There's Mm -hmm. about two, I want to say three quarters of the way through, you hear him say, okay, we've played poker long enough, which essentially means they've tried to be cagey. They've tried to do this and that. And now they're just going to let themselves get taken advantage of by throwing all their money into the middle of the table, showing Wigan all their cards and just saying, give us Will Grigg, we'll give you whatever it takes. Yeah. And this is also where they like, they do sort of very quickly show you some other moments that I kind of wish they had lingered on more because in between the, I think like the fourth and fifth or maybe the third and fourth bid for Will Grigg, they do then go to uh, another alternative Doncaster striker, John Marquise. Did you, uh, did yes, you read about this I, one? Well, I did the same research where I figured out who it, yeah, who it was. Yeah. yeah. That they made an offer of 1.25 million, uh, expecting that that was the number that Doncaster won. And apparently Doncaster came back and quoted 10 million. <laughs> um, and so that was, I think again, that's where he talks about how they kept getting hit with the uh, the England tax, the January tax, and the Sunderland tax are the yep. three things that he threw out. Uh, that so they- if you're faced with those three taxes, don't mm-hmm. buy anything. You mm-hmm. pay 0% tax if you don't buy anything. And this is where you don't, because especially once it becomes clear not continuing with the gambling analogy, but keeping that in mind, that he is hearing what he needs to hear uh, to continue to pursue Will Grigg. It's, I know you don't watch The Office, but many people do. I'm going to use this one. There's a moment when he's yeah, like... Uh, Ricky Gervais, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The Steve Carell version. There's a moment when he's interested in uh, his his boss, who, uh, and he's playing a message, a voicemail message she's left that says, like, Michael, I guess I missed you. Like, I'm looking forward to our meeting later today. I want to clarify that that will be the only topic of conversation. Yeah. And he only focuses on the... I guess I missed you part (laughs) and he's like see she misses me and I feel like that's what he did here because by all accounts what Jack Ross said was Will Grigg for one million yeah that seems like a good deal basically he didn't say I want Will Grigg he said Will Grigg for a million seems like a good deal and then we see him say okay maybe he's worth 1.25 on the phone call but it was never Jack Ross saying get me Will Grigg no matter what and it feels like that's what Stuart Donald by the end seems to have heard even though it's demonstrably not the case. Well, I don't think it's about doing what Jack Ross wants. It's more about um, making a signing that looks good to the fans. Right, but right? I think it, that allows him more justification is what I'm saying. I He's see. saying, like, well, this is what my coach wants. This is the guy he said he wants. So I've got to get him. It like helps him justify spending more money and also help like making the fans happy. And then they'll love me because I brought in this guy. He's on fire after all. But so I think it's the, like Here's the important thing. At some point, Jack Ross, like Stuart, Stuart Donald calls him up and says, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to check if Jack still really wants him, right? And Jack Ross says, like, yeah. okay, you've bid a million and a quarter. Don't bid any more than that. He's not worth any more than that. 
Yeah. He literally says he's not worth any more than a million right. and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the end, Stuart Donald pays more than, much more than double that amount, right? Yeah, but- and at several points in this, um, his... What, what's the uh, Richard Hill? What's his job title? It's like head of football, head of football head operations. Head of operations, I think. Yeah. yeah, Richard seems like a trusted friend of his, right? I believe he was the manager at Eastleigh when Stuart Donald owned Eastleigh, which is a non-league team. Um, who's head of football operations? Richard Hill keeps telling him, "You're panicking. Don't do it. You don't need to do this. Calm down. Don't do it. Don't do it." So the point I want to make is Stuart Donald has hired a head of football operations mm-hmm. who's telling him, "Don't do this." He's got a head coach who's telling him. He's not worth more than a million and a quarter. Um, and he's got uh, Tony Coton, former Man City keeper, as a head of player recruitment. Tony Coton's not putting any pressure on him, saying we should definitely spend three three or four million mm-hmm. on Will Grigg. In the end, all the football people are telling him, don't do this. And Stuart Donald decides to do this. And the key moment for me is after Jack Ross tells him he's not worth any more than that, Stuart Donald says, and I, I type this up because I think it's a really important quote, it's just that owner panicky thing at the end of the season, mm-hmm. bringing someone on for half an hour who's got that bit of experience or whatever. That is him making an on-field decision when he's already hired football people to make the on-field decisions. And he is not a football person. He's an insurance person who happens to like football. Yeah, and I think th- we're saying the same thing. I think it's uh, the difference is just that like you are much more... Uh, like in these situations, unemotional. And I think I tend to focus on the emotional aspect. And so I'm looking at like how he was able to justify it to himself and the sort of emotional response. Not saying it is then justified because I don't think it is. I think he is definitely making irrational decisions based on a pressurized situation. But yeah, in that moment, like I think he kind of says that because that's Jack Ross saying, okay, bid 1.25, but don't do more than that. And I think he is saying like, Okay, well, we're going to get him for 1.25. I'm just being an anxious no- owner. Like, I know. And then when he realizes he has to pay more, he then is kind of ha- talks himself into a different way of seeing it. And, and that was really fascinating to me to see how he kept rationalizing yeah. spending more and more money. But well, I'm, I'm trying to draw a bigger point, which is I think this, this whole thing is in trouble, right? If you uh, oh, yeah. have hired football people and you're also complaining about how money is being spent left, right, and center when it doesn't need to be spent. But then you yourself are the person that at the end of January spends way more money than anyone has advised you to spend. The whole thing is in trouble. I would love yeah. to have seen um, Charlie Methon's reaction to this since he was so concerned about how much money was being spent. I mean, he was, he's in that because they, they show you the two he's different Coaching, conversations, right? right? Yeah. yeah, because I think uh, uh, Stuart Donald and Richard Hill are down in Oxford, I think, at Stuart, like, in, like near where Stuart Donald lives. That's where they yeah. seem to be uh, that, calling from. That office yeah. with the wonderful signage. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, I think you do see Charlie sort of like, ah, okay. And later on, well, I won't get to that one because that's the next episode. I don't want to jump ahead too much. Oh, but yeah. I saw the first 10 seconds of the next episode and mm-hmm. I saw Nigel Farage's face. So I'm going to guess there's some Brexit stuff in there. Uh, yes, there is. Oh. Yes, there is. It's been, a, it's been a, like an underlying theme. Like at one point, Charlie Methvin accidentally quotes the, breath, uh, the Brexit slogan. And then it's like, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Um, that happened in an earlier episode, I think. Um, yeah, but, you know, he gets Will Grigg, who's on fire. So I guess that's good. So Will Grigg. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Will Grigg's on fire. I'm, I'm interested in that moment where they, they show the Will Grigg's on fire video. So Will, Grigg, Will Grigg's yeah. on fire is a chance that Wigan, a Wigan fan started and Wigan mm-hmm. fans adopted it, right? So it became this sort of celebratory thing of Will Grigg when he was scoring goals in League One way, way back in the 2015-16 season right mm-hmm. that moment where they're showing the video do you yeah. think that was for the documentary i laughed out loud is it for the documentary cameras do you think what do you mean well like is that they can't be showing each other that video in the office because they're just figuring out now who will Grigg is right oh no, no no i think they're just like like 
it's it's an exciting trend that they're realizing they get to be a part of. Like you see the Sunderland fans singing it, and it doesn't feel like they're singing it because they're like I'm sure they're excited about a new striker signing, but it feels like it's somewhat that and mostly that like they get to sing the fun player song now because he's yeah. their player. And I feel like it's that as well. The way that guy is kind of chuckling to himself as he watches it, uh, smiling happily, so but not like, necessarily that's who they're discovering in the moment. So it's like Will Greek, the Will Greek transfer is you also mm-hmm. get the rights to this song. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> You're buying him plus the rights. That's another million. <laughs> it's the, the Will Griggs on fire tax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I will say, like, I really did laugh out loud in that moment because I have always sort of understood that to be, and maybe I'm wrong, but I've always understood that to be slightly tongue in cheek because yes. it's like he scored some timely goals for Wigan, for Northern Ireland. But, like, is not this world beater the way it sort of is presented? And to your earlier point from last episode about how, like, this is, it seems very much shot with an American audience in mind. I did feel like they were sort of trying to establish that he was this, like, next level striker that really would, like, elevate Sunderland to the championship. He would be able to be that person. In reality, I was watching it thinking, like, this is kind of tongue in cheek, right? About how he, like, occasionally scores goals but isn't this world beater. Yeah, pretty much. Here's Will Griggs' record, right? So 2015-16, towards the end of that season in League One is when that chance starts. He has scored like 20-something goals that year, right? It's his first big goal-scoring year. Wigan get promoted, and in the championship next season, he scores five goals. That's not great. They get relegated back to League One. He scores 19 goals. So it's Mm -hmm. pretty good, right, in League One. They get promoted back to the championship. And so far in the first half of the season, before he gets bought by Sunderland, he's only scored four goals, right? So he's not had this, like, light you on fire kind of season. So (laughs) Will Grigg is not a world beater. He is a guy who scores goals in League One, but kind of struggles in the championship. And do you know what, like, uh, do you know what his appearance numbers were? Were they more or less consistent or did they dip once they went to the championship? Uh, there were a few more substitute appearances, but he still was like semi-regularly in the first team. It's, not, yeah, it's okay. not like he scored four goals in two games in 2018-19. You know what I'm saying? It was still yeah. a, like about like 18-19 games. Uh, I just it, it, He feels to me like a player who is, a, is about limited at League One, like maybe with the right championship side, but it feels like a player who once his team goes up or once his team is in the championship or he's playing for a championship team is more of a like... Uh, a, a bonus player that you bring in at the end. Like, not necessarily meant to be, well, like, not, the squad not, leader. Not quite as extreme as that, but I think they would often buy another striker to yeah. go at least alongside him. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense to yeah. me. Well, I also found really interesting. I went back and looked at some footage of Josh Madger and some footage of Will Grigg, and mm-hmm. they're very different players Okay, who really would have been a great strike partnership. And I'm still they convinced ha- that Jack Rush's idea was we keep Josh Madger and we add Will Grigg. Yeah. I think that's definitely the case. And it's why they said they needed two strikers once yes. Maja left. So Maja is really good in tight spaces or dribbling at people, right? Like he can like drop a shoulder, make a move and accelerate, get away from people. Or in the box, you, I mean, you do get a glimpse of it in the, the first early episodes of this season of the documentary where he'll make space where there wasn't any space and get a shot away. Um, or he'll have like an unorthodox outside of the foot kind of finish, right? Yeah, so jo- they- Josh Maja's really good like that. They have, just to jump in for a moment, they have that line from one of the fans of like, in the past we were playing poorly, but Josh Maja would take one touch and score a goal and that was the difference. Without Maja, I don't know what we're going to do. So Will Grigg is more, he'll come back deep and connect play in a, and I mean this kindly, like a a budget Harry Kane kind of way. You know what I mean? Like he'll come Mm -hmm. back and have his back to goal, defender on his back, and he'll connect to a winger or he'll connect the ball back to a midfielder. And then he'll make like a nice run inside. And then he's very good at just being um, movement in the box and popping up and finishing, 
right? But that's very different than creating space where there is no space in the box, which is what Josh Madger used to be able to do. And I really think pairing them up would have been the way to go. Yeah, well, we we don't know in terms of like this episode how it's going to go, but it does feel like they're setting the stage for it to not go particularly well. Uh, it takes and him four since- games to score his first goal, right? He scores that penalty mm-hmm. kick after four games, and you already have the guys from the Roka Rapport, the podcast. I don't think that fans- had happened at this point in the episode, just so you know. Yeah, this was the end of the end of this episode. You see him score his penalty. Is that what happens? I, yeah. I thought it was. I thought this episode ends with him being unveiled, and they're like, "He's here now." No, no, you get the okay. fans getting okay. frustrated with him towards the end of episode four. Definitely. Oh, okay, good, Definitely. good, good. Okay, cool, yeah. cool, 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 cool. Um, then yeah, that was that was uh, troubling. I would say for sure. There's even a moment where I, can't, I don't know if it's a radio show or the podcast, but they have uh, Stuart Donald and Charlie uh-huh. Methvin go in and get challenged by the fans um, on whether what's going on with this signing, why isn't he fitting into the system, and it ends with Charlie Methvin doing a sort of almost expert upper-class thing of instead of answering a difficult question that's put to you, you instead um, attack the person that's asking the question and make them feel bad for asking the question. Oh, I disagree with you. I think you're really harsh on Charlie in this one. Yes, I thought that was was one of Charlie Methvin's smartest moments. Because it's it's really clear that that interviewer is not convinced at all by what Stuart Stuart Donald is saying and is recognizing that like something else is in there the way he's explaining this and wants him I think to say basically it's Jack Ross's fault he's the one who wanted him or it's my fault he's trying to like hammer that home and kind of won't let up and I think Charlie Methvin recognizes that Stuart Donald is saying things he shouldn't be saying because he's kind of caught in the crosshairs and so he jumps in to say like there's lots of other stuff we could talk about that we do have insight on and you're only focusing on this one topic so it's like it's it's not maximizing our time here, which is limited. And I think that is smart of him to sort of jump in to save Stuart Donald from saying, I feel like he was a couple seconds away from me. Like, I didn't even want Will Grigg. I don't know who he is. Like, so I think it's not, Charlie sort of recognizing a bad situation. I'm not disagreeing with you in that it wasn't smart, but it's just a thing that I've recognized more and more. And honestly, it's like a kind of a Donald Trump thing, right? It was when you're in an uncomfortable situation and you don't have an answer that the answer seems to be to attack the person answering the, asking the question. Yeah, we can agree to disagree. Oh, I, I mean, but I, he did. He did save Stuart Donald in that moment. I'll agree yeah, with that. Yeah, because I feel like it wasn't just that it was like one question and they didn't know how to answer. Like I was really impressed by that interviewer to the extent that I was like, does he have insider information that they don't know he has? Because he seemed to be very unconvinced by some of the answers and it was specifically when you could tell that they weren't telling him the full story and he seemed to be have the confidence of knowing it's similar like cops when they're interrogating you they want to know all they they should be knowing all the answers so that when you say something that's a lie they know it's a lie and -hmm. i felt like charlie methven knew like oh gosh this guy knows a lot more and is really grilling him on this one topic we got to get out of this one fast (laughs) and i'm not saying he didn't accomplish that Mm -hmm. because he definitely did yes he did he did it was one of charlie's better moments i thought um Anything else you would like to say um, on this uh, Josh Madger or Will Grigg um, saga? Um, two two quick little things. One, to your point about like uh, – I had this in my notes and forgot to mention it. That when you were talking about like the owner shouldn't be there like deciding when he has all these people around him that he's hired to give him the proper insight and to do these things for him. Yeah. It felt like we got an insight into what Roman Abramovich used to be at Chelsea. <laughs> that it was like all these people saying, do not sign Andrei Shevchenko. It will not work. And he was like, no, $30 million. Let's do that right now. <laughs> so I feel like it is a thing that we see with clubs who have that like one main owner. And that seemed to be what Stuart Donald was trying to avoid and yet seems to have fallen into that trap. So that was one thing. But the other thing I did want to say to go back to it is I felt, again, like I was sort of slightly too critical of Stuart Donald and the group because I think what they've inherited is a very bloated organization that you cannot get out of League One with because there are so many people who are used to just like, well, 
I don't really need to do anything because we're just going to have all the expenses covered at the end of the season. And I do get more of an idea of where that toxic atmosphere was coming from. And I think that's why we're seeing them really trying to like trim it down. So it's like it's at, it's at its proper fighting weight as opposed to being bloated and out, out of shape. But I think it is still uh, a long way to go. And we're seeing how I think they approach that with the perspective of like, we're businessmen, we'll come in, we'll run it like a business. These people just didn't know what they're doing. And I think they're slowly realizing or very quickly realizing in the case of Will Griggs signing that it's a lot harder than maybe they thought it was going to be. It's why soccer is a tough business, right? Because there's so much emotion wrapped up in it that it's really hard to just look Mm -hmm. at it as like a a spreadsheet and put figures on paper and say, this is what we do, this is what we do. It's really hard to be cold because then you see the fans get excited about the Will Grigg signing. I think it's, it's actually really important that there were all those scenes um, in this episode of after Will Grigg has been signed, uh, Stuart Donald gets all those hugs from fans as he's walking around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's, it shows that he's committed to it. And I think it's publicly known at that point that that's the largest transfer fee ever paid for a League One player. Yeah. So if you're a Sunderland fan, it, it, like, it is them investing more money than anybody else thought they would. So it does seem like they're doing the right thing. And it does sort of satiate the fans but it's clearly not the type of move that is really going to last that long and you can't keep saying like we spent the most on him because at a certain point that will flip and it will be yeah and he's not good enough that's not a good thing it's also about what's best for the club in the long term though right Mm because they came in saying we're going to come in and we're going to make smart business decisions i would argue that doing sticking to that you'd be doing more service to the fans in the long term by Mm. making smart business decisions and balancing the books and not spending three or four million pounds on a on a pretty average striker um versus just getting like the short-term hit the short-term excitement of spending all that money at the end of the january transfer window yeah like i would argue that they might have been excited but those fans should have been disappointed because they came in with a promise of making sensible business decisions and then they did the opposite yeah and 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 final one for me is just with that in mind like I think it's always just better to like take your licks when they're deserved. And I think to your point, it would have been to your initial point, it would have been smarter just to say like, okay, fine, he's going to leave at the end of the season. We'll just keep Josh, Josh Nigel around on his current wage and, and hopefully we get promoted with him. And then once we have more money, we can reinforce and fans would have been mad and it would have been a bad look. But to then I think keep trying to fix that mistake so that fans yeah. don't get mad. It makes them angrier in the long run when things really don't go well. One final thing, I, I 100% agree with that, by the way. Uh, one final thing I would say is that the Will Grigg signing wasn't even as necessary as they made it seem because Sunderland had actually made two other attacking signings mm-hmm. in this window, right? So Lewis Morgan, who was like a goal-scoring winger, had come in on loan from Celtic. And that's a play that Jack Ross had previously coached at St. Mirren when Lewis Morgan was on loan from Celtic to St. Mirren. So Lewis Morgan had joined. Mm-hmm. And then Keziah Sterling, who I believe is in the Total Sock Show Scouting Network. He's like a 20 year old young striker. He had come in on loan from Spurs. So they already got two players in and, you know, no transfer fee, obviously, because they're on loan or a very small loan fee or whatever. They didn't need to spend the money because they'd already mm-hmm. got two players. Whereas the documentary sets it up as they need a striker because they don't have a striker. Uh, they also, uh, Daryl, I think you're being totally unfair because they totally told us that Morgan and Sterling signed. Do you forget that moment? Did they really? Was there a quick, no, quick shot of it? Very brief, not even of them. There's a very brief cut of them pressing Sunderland jerseys, and they very quickly show that they say Morgan and Sterling on the back. Yes, that's, it. that's your only sign that they signed those two guys. You're right. Oh wow. Yeah. So that is like, is that like a little insert just to be like, hey, we definitely told you that this happened, right? Yeah. I mean, and I only knew that because I'm currently playing as uh, Sunderland on FIFA 20. It helps me alleviate some of the sadness I feel for the fans, especially from the first season, to then go play and be like, I'm doing it for you guys. <laughs> uh, but I knew those names from playing. Sunderland and I was like oh yeah I know them 
Oh, did they sign them? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, yes, they did. I've heard from nice your, to know that. I've, I've heard from your FIFA 20 career mode that um, the mm-hmm. players to sign are Jesus Ferreira and Paxton Pomacal. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, Americans are the way to go. That is true. Sunderland should look into that for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, three of my four attackers are Americans and it seems to be working out so far. Oh, Lyndon Gooch. We didn't get any Lyndon mm-hmm. Gooch in this episode, did we? No, no, we did not. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else to say about Sunderland till I die? Uh, I, I am, I'm glad I'm not sending until I die. No, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, at least it makes Newcastle so fans feel better, right? Um, I feel so bad for the Sunderland <laughs> fans. All right, Taylor, that's it. That's it from us for this week, right? We'll be back next week with all kinds of Total Soccer Show. So Taylor, yes, I will say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I will say the same to you. We may have a special interview dropping uh, this weekend, but we may save that for next week. Uh, I genuinely can't remember what you and I decided, but we, I did just want to tease that. We decided to publish that next week. All right, cool. Then that will be out next week, in which case, <laughs> Daryl, I will talk to you next week. I love that we can do our business on the air, Taylor. Hey, you know, sometimes you got to. Sometimes you got to. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening, and thank you for listening to our brief business meeting. Mm-hmm. We will talk to you again next week. 